Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Picture a young woman in the 1970s. Long brown hair and a definitive counterculture style. This is when I was pregnant with my, my child, you know, wearing a tablecloth with fringe and being this, you know, hippie, oh. hippie royalty thing there. That's an amazing image. And here was the day I decided that if I was going to eat meat, I had to learn to kill my own chicken. Marilyn Skoglund is going through old photos of herself from around the time when she lived in the orbit of Goddard College in Plainfield. She came here with her then-husband in 1973. Duncan was teaching painting and printmaking and drawing at Goddard College, and I had this adorable little baby. We rented this fabulous little tiny shepherd's cottage in the middle of this 500-acre dairy farm. No insulation, wood heat. But the farmer was fabulous. I'm, I'd go dip raw milk out of the bulk tank, and you know he'd give us a chicken once in a while. And it was a lovely way to live. It was the dawning of the age of Aquarius, and Marilyn and her fellow hippies wanted to make art and reject materialism and live sensibly, do well by our neighbors, and honor the earth, and all of those lovely ideals that we all came with back then. To give you an idea of how much of a hippie culture we had embraced, I was playing the auto harp at that point, and I had handmade a sheepskin auto harp case, which we would tuck our daughter into on the floor while we played music at the Grange. I mean, it was great. It was just great. I actually don't know what an auto harp is. How is that different from a... It's a... Oh, like maybe my music teacher played one? Exactly. Okay, sort of smaller. Yes, exactly. Very Ozark Mountain kind of thing. (laughs) But that was then. And now? Good morning, Your Honors. The matter before the court this morning is the case entitled... Well, things are a little different now. What bothers me here is your argument that the commission was properly declined to exercise its discretion in favor of an opportunity to cure during the transition. This is tape from an oral argument that the Vermont Supreme Court heard in April, where Marilyn Skoglund, formerly a raw milk-drinking, auto-harp-playing hippie mama, is an associate justice. This month on the podcast, where those hippies are now. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. This is a show about what you want it to be about. Every month you tell us what question about Vermont, our region, or its people you want us to take on. This month... My name is Judy Pond. I live in Norwich, Vermont. And my question is, where are all the aging hippies that moved to Vermont during the 60s and 70s? And what are they doing now? The past may be obscured in a cloud of wood smoke, but what does the present look like? We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. 
Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. We're going to hear more from Justice Marilyn Scogland very soon. But first, let's get to know our question asker, Judy Pond. Well, when I came here, I guess I thought I was going to grow all my own food forever and have a lot of animals and really, you know, live that kind of life. And that's pretty much gone by the wayside. I, you know, I have a garden. Judy is allowed to ask about, quote, aging hippies because she is one. She moved to the town of Sharon in 1968 after getting her master's in linguistics from Brown University. It was the year before Kent State, after Martin Luther King. Not long after that, Judy and some friends started an alternative school. It was just a little school. Oh, we thought this is exciting. And we paid ourselves $100 a month when we could afford to do that. In 1971, Judy built herself a tiny house in Norwich. Before, tiny houses were a thing, of course. I don't know. I went to the library and got a book called Modern Carpentry. (laughs) And I didn't know what I was doing, but everybody was helpful and gave advice. And um, it turned out great. The alternative school didn't last very long, but Judy stayed in that house, though she had some additions built, for over 40 years. She also stayed in education, mostly as a middle school teacher. Uh, Some high school And uh, I retired nine years ago. So what's Judy's answer to her own question? What's she up to these days? Now I'm somebody I had no idea I would become. I am a violinist. I call myself an adult-onset violinist. I spent a lot of time in New Hampshire at the um, Upper Valley Music Center, which is just a wonderful place in Lebanon. She's been practicing with this recording of Bach's Cello Suite No. 3 in C major for two years. Judy says the formative mindset of her hippie years was this sense that if you found the right book or mentor, you could learn how to do anything, like build a house or play the violin. So I'm interested in whether other people from that era have maintained some of those attitudes about how we can all learn to do whatever we want and where it's taken them. This episode is about the present. But if you're not familiar with Vermont's Back to the Land movement, or hippie invasion, as some called it, here's a quick primer. Well, the Back to the Land movement was an outgrowth of the civil rights movement Yvonne Daly is the author of a brand new book about this era called Going Up the Country, When the Hippies, Dreamers, Freaks, and Radicals Moved to Vermont. We're talking about a lot of hippies, dreamers, freaks, and radicals, an estimated 40,000 between 1970 and 1980, including Yvonne, whose accent earned her the hippie nickname Boston. Sure, there were at least 75 recognized communes in the state in the Uh, say, the late 60s, early 70s, and far more that, you know, were operating under the radar. The clothing was whimsical, but the philosophies of the counterculture were no joke. 
we were very disillusioned with the assassinations of our president, President Kennedy, his brother Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King Jr. And then came the war. And all of a sudden, our brothers and people that had gone to high school with us were being sent to war in a place called Vietnam. So it had something to do with opposition to the war. It had something to do with an experimental lifestyle of trying to almost blow apart a lot of stereotypes, whether it was the nuclear family or how to raise your children. And back to the Landers specifically, we're interested in what Yvonne calls the old ways. The idea that you could grow your own food, that you could make your own clothes, that you could harvest your own wood, we found that that was already in existence in Vermont. By the way, when Yvonne says we, she means mostly well-off, educated white people. It didn't occur to us as much then how privileged we were. We were rejecting comfort. The history of this movement and the way it shaped Vermont is very well documented. You can explore the Vermont Historical Society's 1970s counterculture project. It has more than 50 oral history interviews available online. You can also check out Yvonne's new book, Going Up the Country. And in this episode, we're actually going to hear from some of the folks she talked to. On that note, let's fast forward to today. I am responding to an email talking about uh, aging hippies. Hi, my name's Melinda Moulton, and I live in Huntington. This is Nicholas Eckerotz from Lover, Vermont. As we are wont to do, we collected some of your stories to help answer this question. I always love doing this. Okay, so my name is Veranda Porsche. Bradford Johnston. Lucy Horton. Uh, it's Robert Murray Hundley. I moved here in 1968 with a group of friends. We didn't think of it as a commune. Later we said, oh yeah, we live on a commune. We referred to it as Total Lost Farm. And 50 years later, I still live here. I am 72, I'm gonna be 73 in a few weeks. And I live currently in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. Moved for law school so my wife could go to Columbia and then came to Washington, D.C. and we've been snowbirds. Had a building business, construction. I'm now a licensed Vermont forester. I do some surveying. For the last 36 years, I am the redeveloper of the Burlington Waterfront. Semi-retired now. I retired when I was 70 from being a minister in the church. I have had to um, endure the replacement of two hips. Every morning, my friends and I climb our local hill. That's a steep climb. It never gets easier. I came here to write poetry and that's what I've done throughout my life. Now I'm exploring from the inside the poetics of civic life. I, following Trump's inauguration, I ran for the Guilford Select Board. We started a new Democratic club here in the area and we just had our third meeting yesterday. I'm on the board of the local library. I've worked for my town as selectman, EMT, currently town moderator. I still feel uh, very much that, that you can do things to be self-sufficient and grow the values that are important for humanity. Um, 
I, I just think it takes more work than we thought. And I always have hope that one conversation at a time that people can come to hear each other. Thanks to everyone who shared their stories with us. Now, let's get back to the aging hippie we met at the top of the show, Justice Marilyn Skoglund. I meet Justice Skoglund in her chambers in the Vermont Supreme Court building in Montpelier. It's a perfect spring day, and sun is pouring into the windows of her corner office. But her honor is deep in her work. Yeah, I mean, so far this morning, I've answered emails, reviewed another justice's circulation of a proposed a draft opinion, and now I'm focusing on getting ready for term, just reading briefs. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy that part of it? Yeah, I love this part. This is I learn something every month. I'm just learning something in the very case I'm reading now about unemployment law that I didn't know before. So it's a great job. It's just never boring. Justice Skoglund was named to Vermont's Supreme Court in 1997. She was the second woman to ever take a seat on that bench. And before that, you were on the district court. Yeah, and family and civil. And before that, I did 17 years at the attorney general's office. It sounds like a fairly standard resume until you get to Skoglund's degrees. She has only one of those, a bachelor's in sculpture and art history. So I do believe I'm the only Supreme Court justice in the country that never went to law school. I could be wrong on that, but I don't think so. Here's how it all happened. Back in the 70s, the young hippie Marilyn Skoglund decided that she wanted to pursue law because she liked reading and writing. She also needed a steady income. This sounds very strange, but, you know, when you marry an artist, (laughs) at some point it dawns on you that one of you has to actually earn a salary. (laughs) So uh, Goddard was downsizing. Duncan. Unfortunately, Marilyn's bachelor's in fine arts didn't make her the strongest candidate for law school. Oh, so you took the LSATs and applied to law school. I did. But you did not get accepted to the law schools you applied to? No, I didn't. (laughs) Which is probably just as well, because we had no money anyway. (laughs) But Marilyn wasn't deterred. Like our question asker Judy, she took it upon herself to learn the skills she wanted. And she took advantage of a unique Vermont law that basically lets aspiring lawyers learn on the job. They call it office study now. Back then it was a reading for the bar, reading for the law. So I was over in the attorney general's office. It's one of the wonders of Vermont that you can apprentice yourself for four years. Don't go to law school, then take the bar along with everybody else. And if you pass, you can be an attorney. And that's exactly what I did. Today, Justice Skoglund is the longest serving justice currently on the high court. And she's ruled on watershed Vermont cases, like the one that eventually led to Vermont's civil unions law. Oh, and she's also living in a house, not a shepherd's cottage. Let me tell you, I still walk past that thermostat on the wall and go, hi, love it, love it, do your job. I mean, after 11 years of heating with nothing but wood, I love my thermostat. But she carries those years with her. Listen closely to the language Justice Skoglund uses to talk about her work. 
it echoes back to the values that hippies placed on things like communal harmony and art. I just fell in love with the law. It is so logical. It outlines how to live in a society of individuals without bothering everybody else. It, it's just an amazingly wonderful art form. There are more overt connections, too. Justice Scoglin's office is just about as bohemian as a chamber's could possibly be. She painted the walls herself, a stately blue. Above her bookshelves, there's a mounted head of a smiling boar she calls Emmett. It's flanked by two framed photos, one's of President Harry S. Truman, and the other's a signed photo of the comedian Lily Tomlin. Meanwhile, Justice Scoglund has transformed the lobby of the Supreme Court into a giant art gallery with rotating exhibitions of Vermont artists. The walls were just uh, perfect to display art. And I, that, so I can keep my finger in knowing who's in, who's in Vermont, who's painting what, who's seeing what. On the day I visit, the paintings of Castleton artist Tom Merwin are splashing pinks and oranges and blues across the white walls. And the best thing about that project down there, which has been going on now for at least 15, 16 years, I don't know, is when I can come to work and see staff standing in front of a painting and talking about it. They're not afraid of art anymore because it's around them all the time. And I think that's great. And Skoglin says her own experience as an artist broadened her perspective as a judge, especially when it came to cases involving families living in poverty. You know, I actually think having a fine arts background made me a much better trial judge. I understood poverty. (laughs) I don't know if my colleagues had this perspective or not, but when people in, like, parentage actions would claim, you know, the house was messy, well, hello. (laughs) I lived in a house, you know, with uh, wood heat and two rooms, uninsulated. It was messy at times. Um, one, One case I recall, they were complaining this is true story. They were complaining that the father wasn't sending appropriate snacks with his children to school. And I stopped the therapist who was testifying on the stand, and I said, you know, doctor, you ought, maybe you, I want to warn you, you're testifying in front of someone who once had nothing to send with her kid to school, so she sent a coconut and a hammer for snack. And he looks at me like, you know, you're going to be certifiable at any moment. <laughs> I mean, I was doing the best I could. By this time, my husband had left, and, um, you know, I started work at the AG's office and earned $7,000 a year, I think. Those experiences shaped her worldview. But Justice Scoglin says her hippiness only goes so far. I think the the hippie background is just uh, enforcing a humanist kind of approach to life. But my first allegiance is to the law. I took an oath. I take that so seriously. I have issued decisions that I hated, but it was what the law required. So I'm not an activist judge. I seem to think of myself as being in the middle of the rotor. I will be highly protective of individual rights and freedoms, but I will also read what the law says and not try to bend the legislative language to fit a result that I would like to see.
While Marilyn Scogland brings her humanist values to the Vermont Supreme Court every day, other back to the landers are still right there on the ground. Hey, how are you? Good. My colleague Nina Keck caught up with one of them at the Rutland Farmer's Market. If it's spring in Vermont and you want to cook fiddleheads or wild ramps, Greg Cox is your man. What do you do with ramps? Oh boy, they are awesome. A lot of folks think ramps, thinks the bulb. No, the greens, they are oh, just really? absolutely That's what you eat? delicious. Greg is the owner of Boardman Hill Farm in West Rutland. He recommends chopping the ramp greens and sautéing them with some butter and olive oil. Do some fettuccine noodles or some kind of egg noodles. Some of his customers have their own methods. I cut this part off and I stick them in the garden. In Rutland, everyone seems to know Greg Cox. He's kind of like farmer's market royalty because he helped turn what had been a sleepy on-again, off-again Rutland market into a not-to-be-missed weekend party that brings upwards of $5 million into the local economy every year. It's become a point of pride for Rutland, and so everybody comes out. And we've gone out of our way to include everybody uh, from the, you know, the, the economically challenged all the way up to, um, you know, the businesses and the folks that uh, normally would, you know, nurses, doctors, everybody comes. Which is just the way Greg likes it, because while he's a businessman, farmer and father, He's also a back-to-the-land revolutionary who believes equality and respect are more important than profit. I am still a hippie. I will die a hippie, yes. Greg was born in the Bronx in 1950. He remembers helping out his grandmother in her vegetable garden as a child and believes that's where he became fascinated with how things grow. Greg says his parents wanted him to go to college and become a teacher, but he had other dreams. I was always working and I always saved my pennies and I was going to buy a big track of land and move to Canada. <laughs> and so Vermont was pretty damn close. <laughs> By enrolling in Johnson State College in the fall of 1968, Greg was able to please his parents and get closer to Canada. But it was a volatile time. Greg's older brother fought in Vietnam and he urged Greg to avoid the war at all costs. Greg did, but he admits his parents, who'd been through World War II and Korea, struggled with Greg's long hair and counterculture ideas. Oh, they were not very happy. Not very happy at all. They didn't understand it. And I was involved in a lot of protests and just, I wanted to change the world. I just really wanted to change the world. What would people have said about you had they met you in the late 60s? Get your hair cut. <laughs> what do you want to be a girl? <laughs> that was actually my dad. <laughs> but you know, we were doing drugs and we were listening to loud music. But I was a Boy Scout leader. I volunteered on an ambulance. You know, I was involved, but I was driven by my value system to change the way people treated each other. Greg says he learned another important set of values from the old-time Vermonters he befriended when he got to Johnson. Volunteer firefighters and farmers who'd lived in the Green Mountains for generations fascinated him. They were like modern-day Native Americans. They had a value system and a connection to the, to the cycles of the earth 
that were just amazing. I mean, cycles of the mountains, the, you know, maple sugar in and, and uh, wild crafting. And, and uh, boy, I learned so much from these folks. And it wasn't long before I was like, boy, I want to become just like them. But getting there took Greg a while. After college, he worked as a building contractor and later as a caretaker farmer. I became a ski bum at Kellington. <laughs> and he's worked as an adjunct professor at Green Mountain College. But his passion has always been farming. And as soon as he could afford it, he bought an 80-acre farm in West Rutland, where he now grows just about everything, organically, of course. We do a bent towards biodynamic, if you know what that is. So we try to... Uh, view the farm as an ecosystem. You make it sustainable. It's why he has a large community solar array on his property that provides cheap local power to him and dozens of his neighbors. And because he believes these values are important to pass on, Greg spends a lot of time mentoring new young farmers. Three years ago, he helped launch a program to help them bring their fruits and vegetables to seniors who couldn't otherwise afford it. The program also provides summer jobs for at-risk youth. We actually bring them up to the farms and, you know, they get paid and they have a job and they get exposed to really neat people with a good work ethic. And then they go down and pack the food. So it's empowering to see folks that are benefiting from their labor. His efforts have not gone unnoticed. And in 2016, Greg Cox, a self-proclaimed radical hippie farmer who never did finish college, was named Business Person of the Year by the Rutland Region Chamber of Commerce. And you're laughing. (laughs) Well, that's just so, uh, I mean, it was an honor. And more important than that, it was the first farmer that was actually Business Person of the Year. Because uh, somehow farmers... They're not really businesses. <laughs> it's like you're dismissed by the economists because you're a farmer. It's not really a business. Yeah, so it, it was pretty cool. Uh, I think it was recognition of where Rutland is at the moment, understanding that we're the home of John Deere. We were the one of the largest exporters of agricultural products to New York City and Boston. And so you need to build your future on who you are. Greg says he's tried to follow the same advice and build his own career around the things he feels passionately about. And yeah, if possible, change the world along the way. He says that's the beauty of being part of the hippie generation. And I hope it happens again. You know, I I hope some generation, whichever one it is, will take a look at the world the way it is and say, we can make it better. And if they can do that and do a better job than we did, everyone will be, the earth itself will be better off for it. Yep. Nina Keck. And thanks to Yvonne Daly for suggesting we talk to Greg Cox. If Vermont's Back to the Land movement had a power couple, it might have been Lois Eby and her late husband, David Budbill. Lois talked to my colleague Amy Noyes about a hard choice that recent years brought. Here's Amy. 
Lois is an abstract painter who uses ink and acrylics. I improvise on a line and then add color, but I don't plan paintings in advance, so I let them happen once I establish a line or a color. David was a poet who famously wrote about hardscrabble Vermonters and his own love for chores such as planting a garden and heating with wood. Back up to it. Hands behind your back, palms out, the warmth of the wood stove working its way into your body. Toast the back of your legs, your butt. Turn around and warm the other side. This is heaven. That's David reading a commentary on VPR in 2013. He died nearly two years ago, but his words about life in rural Vermont will outlive us all. And the story of the end of his life will hit home for many of Vermont's aging hippies. Here's his wife, Lois. One thing that I think is happening to our generation of people who moved to Vermont in the uh, late 60s, 70s, and early 80s is that um, everyone is now aging and now beginning to question whether they can stay in their places out in the woods. We used to talk about that. These are things you don't think about when you're young. When Lois and David came to Vermont in 1969, they didn't plan on growing old here. The plan was to spend a year here so David could write in relative peace. And we managed to save $5,000 between us, so we thought that was enough to live on for a year (laughs) at that time. Someone hooked them up with a cheap place in Wolcott, just outside the Northeast Kingdom. And when a nearby piece of land came up for sale, they made it their own. We found a place, some land that we loved, and we built a house. And we thought, well, we'll just uh, build a house and we can store our books and then we can go wherever we decide to go. But of course, we got involved in life and fell in love with where we were and hardly traveled at all, really. Lois had a studio in their new home, and David had a writing loft. And that place, which David fictionalized as Judavine Mountain, inspired much of her art and his writing, including this poem called Horizons Far and Near, which David read on VPR's show Vermont Edition in 2010. Why am I so happy here on Judavine Mountain? My friends say I should travel, see the world. They say, I would improve myself, broaden my perspectives, expand my horizons. Why can't they understand I don't want to go anywhere except out into my woods, down the hill, across the brook, and up into the stand of big white pine about a half a mile from here? Although Lois says they didn't come to be part of a movement, it's easy to see how they fit in. I think David had... um interests that were very close to the Back to the Land movement. So he felt uh, he wanted to heat with wood, cut his own wood. He loved gardening. And so growing his own food and cutting um, firewood was very much part of the life that he in particular wanted. But we we also um, just loved being off in the woods by ourselves. They raised their family on that Wolcott hillside and then settled into life as empty nesters. But there eventually came a time when rural living and homesteading chores became too much. David developed peripheral neuropathy in his feet and then something even more devastating, a rare form of Parkinson's disease. Called um, PSP. Uh, Let's see, progressive supranuclear palsy. I'm, I'm... 
blocking the name. It's such a difficult illness. So he was becoming unable to even walk to the woods, let alone cut wood, or, and then he couldn't bring wood in. And um, he was started falling a lot because of the PSP. And it was obvious that the disease was progressing. We didn't know at that time what it was, but we just felt that um, things were things were um, becoming more and more difficult for us to sustain, and we were having to hire neighbors to do all the things that, that we loved doing. And those stairs up to the writing loft became too difficult for David to navigate. So Lois and David left their Judevine Mountain home. David had never wanted to make any changes in the house or the life. So he, he didn't want to see the wood stove replaced with a, any other kind of heat. And, and it, would have, it would have been difficult anyway because of the falling. It was a very, very um, hard disease to manage. So we decided rather quickly to move to Montpelier and to a place that was all on one level where he wouldn't have to cope with stairs of any kind. David died in 2016. His ashes are buried in a Vermont maple box among that white pine stand in Wolcott where he loved to be. Lois still lives and paints in Montpelier. She's active with local arts organizations, and recently she was the featured artist at an event at Bryan Memorial Gallery in Jeffersonville. She's also an active grandmother. Her daughter's family lives nearby. And now Lois is seeing friends facing the same decisions she and David had to make. I can see other people wondering, well, what's going to happen when I can't keep up the garden or bring the wood in? And um, that's a, it's now a big question facing that, that group of people who love their places, as we did. David thought and wrote about such big questions when he was mourning the death of his father, and perhaps that prepared him to face his own fate. In 2003, he collaborated with musicians William Parker and Hamid Drake to record some of his poetry for an album called Songs for a Suffering World. Listening to David's words now, they somehow sound both heavy and uplifting. They're also good advice for Vermont's aging hippies, and all of us. Tomorrow... We are bones and ash. The roots of weeds poking through our skulls. Today, simple clothes, empty mind, full stomach, alive, aware, right here, right now. Drunk on music, who needs wine? Come on, sweetheart. Let's go dancing while we've still got feet. Amy Noise. Thanks so much for listening to the show this month. We've got now and then photos of Justice Marilyn Skogland and Lois Eby up at our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit a question of your own and vote on the one you want us to tackle next. 
Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund and from VPR members. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our groovy theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode from Banjo Dan Linder, William Prussell, Blue Dot Sessions, and Poddington Bear. Special thanks this month to Erica Heilman, Robin MacArthur, Robert Resnick, and Kari Anderson. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back next month. And until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BraveStateVT. And of course, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.